Rochelle Young. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And I'm Sam Tracy. And thanks for tuning in to season four of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project produced by alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an international student-led organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision-makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We envision a world in which our laws and attitudes surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this week's show. And now it's time for our weekly news and forecast, where we talk about some of the biggest drug news from the last week and some exciting things that are coming up in the week ahead. Uh, so, Rochelle, do you want to start things off with our first news story? Sure, Sam. So for our first story, um, I wanted to go with something a little bit more uplifting and hopeful. Um, Excellent. (laughs) And this is, uh, you know, so this story is the result of criminal justice reform actually working. So since the passage of Proposition 47 in California, which was a 2014 voter initiative that reduced certain low-level property and drug felonies to misdemeanors um, and then allowed people who were already in prison for those crimes to apply for resentencing, now 18,000 people or fewer people are incarcerated in jails and prisons in California, and then and there have been 40,000 fewer convictions um, in that time. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. the state of California has already saved $103 million from people that it is not um, incarcerating. Mm-hmm. And through Prop 47, Alameda County, which is where um, Berkeley is located, I believe. Mm. So in the Bay Area... Um, Alameda County will now receive $6 million um, of those savings for community-based re-entry programs. The 2014 voter initiative also mandated that the savings be put into a fund to finance programs to help formerly incarcerated people rebuild their lives. Wow, that's awesome. I guess, I mean, because we talked about Proposition 47 before on the show, um, including having Diane Goldstein on to talk about it. Um, but And I knew that it would be saving a huge amount of money, but I guess I didn't realize that so, there was a provision in there saying what should be done with the savings, because yeah. that's something that we always talk about that like, oh, we're going to be saving all this money and it could be used for these other things. But it's awesome that they actually mandated it in there and that it's being used for alternatives instead. Yeah, I'm actually um, intrigued by this, um, by your position on it, because I feel like oftentimes like more um, mm-hmm. like libertarian minded, like anti-government people don't like um, earmarking savings because they're sa- because then the argument is you're not really saving money if you're just spending it somewhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. But I feel like in this case, there's a very clear connection between shifting uh, public policy around drugs from a criminal justice uh, frame to a public yeah. health and mental health treatment frame. So you're it's more like one hundred three million dollars in reallocated funds rather than savings for the state. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, I guess, kind of the way that I look at it is that, I mean, especially if it's reentry programs that are essentially designed to be helping people recover and then not reoffend. Um, I think that that's, you know, basically 
this big pot of money was going towards incarceration, which was at least supposedly um, for the goal of reducing crime. And so shifting it over to what are much more effective anti-crime programs, um, I think is definitely a net gain. And I guess I could see, I know that in California, there's a lot of issues with ballot initiatives and Mm -hmm. that they can allocate spending. Mm -hmm. And maybe in general, that system is a bad idea because I can see where people are coming from if it's like the voters are able to mandate what the taxes are and the spending in, but like not really necessarily connect the two. Um, but for this specific case, it seems like a great idea. So the other piece that um, I definitely wanted to point out, because Prop 47 was really progressive in not just um, moving felonies to misdemeanors, but also allowing people who had been convicted under the previously, you know, the previous mm. law to be reset, not just resentenced, but this opens up the opportunity for so many people to have their records uh, reduced or expunged. Also, Mm -hmm. um, and apparently in California, there are more than 5,000 restrictions on people who have criminal records. So that can include anything from discrimination in housing, employment, and in obtaining public benefits. Um, Mm -hmm. So the campaign that did work on this um, issue said that this will help uh, reduce the recidivism rate, which right now is Mm -hmm. at 60%. Oh, wow. So more than 250,000 people have already filed applications to have their felonies reduced on their criminal records. Um, And over 100 clinics have opened up statewide to help people reduce or expunge old felonies from their records. So good job Mm -hmm. to the uh, Californias for Safety and Justice, which is the campaign behind Prop 47. Yeah, you go, California. And now for our second big story this week, Um, I'm glad that we started off with a positive one because I guess both of mine are talking about kind of sticky issues, but at least not necessarily, you know, really awful things. Um, But so the first one is that uh, a story about some hypocrisy in the NFL. Um, So as anyone who has watched a football game in the U.S. has definitely seen, uh, they have tons and tons of alcohol advertisements, especially during the Super Bowl. And, you know, the NFL even has an official beer of the NFL, which is currently Bud Light. So classy. Um, (laughs) And while beer, you know, is an incredibly common part of NFL advertising, They've actually never before allowed liquor ads, um, that is, until now. Um, So there's some restrictions on these liquor ads, which we can get to in a minute. Um, And I think it's an interesting thing to talk about, well, because... In a sense, I guess this could be seen as ending hypocrisy in beer versus liquor. And I guess I'm curious to talk about whether that is hypocritical um, to have different rules about them and how that should be treated. Um, But it is also, unfortunately, in the same policy that they put out, uh, creates a new hypocrisy, which is explicitly banning marijuana ads, even in legal states. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for the first time. The NFL official policy now says that it bans ads for, quote, cannabis, other products containing cannabinoids and products related to the production or ingestion of such products, end quote. So, yeah, I mean, what are your first thoughts on this? Is is it a positive step or a negative step to be allowing liquor ads? Um, is, is that ending hypocrisy or is that just kind of basically the same thing? Um... That's a good philosophical question. I feel like I, um, (laughs) my personal views tend to be, tend to be, to be towards the anti-advertising marketing, Mm -hmm. um, of any products 
generally, right. like, but particularly like potentially addictive substances, like, um, yeah, including tobacco and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I know obviously it's not realistic for the NFL to be like, we're not going to allow beer advertising anymore because that's a mm-hmm. huge, such a huge part of their revenue. Um, but I also don't support like the, like the, the entire liquor industry's mm-hmm. reliance on, I don't know, the sports connection. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I'm not a big proponent of like advertising for substances anyway. Like, I don't think that's like one of your corporate rights. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this whole thing is really tough for me, too, that I'm having like internal struggles about because on the one hand, I mean, as we've said, like I tend I'm the the token libertarian Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways on the show. And I think that in general, advertising is totally fine. Um, But when it does come to addictive substances, I, I, I think it's very fair to restrict or ban those advertisements. I don't really have any problem with banning tobacco ads. Quite honestly, I think that both marijuana and alcohol advertising should probably be banned, at least mm-hmm. on television and radio and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I guess, you know, I don't want to have this hypocrisy that Mm -hmm. like, hey, if we're going to allow alcohol ads, we should definitely allow marijuana ads, too. And I guess in the same way, liquor can be more dangerous than beer in certain sense, just because it's easier to abuse if it's if it's in a more concentrated form. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I mean, it's just alcohol. And if people are using it responsibly, you know, whiskey isn't really any more dangerous than beer as long as you're actually consuming the same amount of alcohol total. Mm hmm. Yeah, I tend to agree with that overall. I mean, uh, it's as someone who comes from a country where like advertising for pharmaceuticals is mm-hmm. not very is not common or not allowed. Um, yeah, yeah, the US I, I could is see weird an like argument around medical cannabis, you know, being allowed, whereas adult use cannabis advertisements hmm. couldn't, um, you know, from yeah. a medical framework. But that to me is also causes like cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a good point. I mean, the U.S. I think is one of only a handful of countries that allows pharmaceutical ads. And so it does seem to make sense that we should allow at least medical marijuana. That is a good point. Um, but I mean, yeah, and this does just tie into the general hypocrisy of the NFL with marijuana. Um, as people have probably seen, unfortunately, in many cases that if, you know, a player is caught consuming cannabis or has a positive drug test, they'll get suspended for more mm-hmm. games than someone who commits a violent crime or people who are involved in domestic abuse and mm-hmm. other really awful things like that. So I guess it's not surprising, unfortunately, that the NFL is uh, pretty anti-marijuana, but hopefully this is part of an evolution and maybe they'll eventually get there. Definitely. Um, so moving on to our next story now, and this one, um, is kind kind of a segue from our last, uh, conversation, but the Food and Drug Administration has requested on Thursday that the drug maker Endo Pharmaceuticals stop selling Opana ER, its extended release version of Opana, which we have found out is a trade name for oxymorphone. Um, this is the first time the U.S. FDA, um, has 
asked that an opioid pain medication be removed from the market due to, quote, the public health consequences of abuse, end quote. In a statement, the Trump-appointed head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, said, We will continue to take regulatory steps when we see situations where an opioid product's risks outweigh its benefits, not only for its intended patient population, but also in regard to its potential for misuse and abuse. Which I think that statement in and of itself is pretty interesting, um, mm-hmm. creating kind of a maybe a false distinction between quote-unquote intended patient population and, on the other hand, those potentially mm-hmm. abusing it, since we know that oftentimes that one becomes the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts about this first first time in history um, a substance being banned by the FDA specifically for its potential to be uh, abused outside of its prescribed uses? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting, I I guess, like small skirmish in the battle over opioids and and the way that those are being regulated. Um, And I mean, I I do think that this is kind of a form of regulation rather than prohibition, Mm -hmm. even though if it's essentially regulating the specific type of products, I guess. I mean, and this is, again, kind of a bigger philosophical discussion about whether you know, prohibition doesn't work, but what is the line between prohibition and regulation? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that this does come down on the regulatory side just because, you know, it's specifically stopping just a certain form of a, of a drug that it is an extended release version. It's not um, banning the original one and it's not, say, banning the entire class of opiates. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is also um, just interesting to see that they're claiming that this is because its risks outweigh its benefits. Um, but I, I'm sure many, many people would argue that many of the opioids on the market that have been on the market for decades, that their risks outweigh their benefits. And I know there have been a lot of claims that pharmaceutical companies, as we've talked about, I think just last week about, you know, cities and states that are suing pharmaceutical maker mm-hmm. or pharmaceutical companies about false advertising, that they basically downplayed all of the risks and and exaggerated the benefits. So I I think it does make sense to use that metric. But um, I do think we should be applying that metric evenly and maybe reevaluate in some of these other drugs that have been around for so long. That is really interesting that that's your that that, that's your conclusion, because that's actually what I was about to say. I wonder if this is going to set a precedent for, Mm. you know, the FDA reevaluating a lot of other medications that are currently um that are currently allowed and that are being prescribed and in some cases overprescribed um, mm-hmm. and whether that might negatively impact, you know, legitimate pain patients who rely mm-hmm. on these medications to deal with, um, you know, their intractable pain mm-hmm. um, and whether reducing the supply side of regulated substances might actually lead more mm. people to the illicit market, uh, which is something right. that um, Kat Humphreys, who's a friend of our show and works mm-hmm. in direct service, has pointed out. Um, the other thing I did want to highlight before we move on from this story is that, um, one, like as you said, cities and lawsuits have been filing um, successful charges against pharmaceutical companies, and that seems to mm. have been the most... Um, the most successful form of reducing the pharmaceutical company's impacts on the opioid epidemic so far. But I wonder mm. like, if we need to have a serious conversation within the reform community about what types of policies we support on the regulatory side. Like, If yeah. we say this is a 
public health problem rather than a criminalization problem, then like what public health efforts do we support other than treatment? You know, Mm -hmm. like what preventative efforts do we support? Yeah, absolutely. It is interesting that I feel like, you know, the drug policy reform community is mostly unified around ending the war on drugs. But as we get closer and closer to that goal, um, there there is probably going to be a whole lot of discussion, uh, hopefully healthy discussion about, you know, what what the transition actually looks like to uh, having a, a less punitive policy and, and exactly how we should regulate it there. And so moving on to our last big story, and this is one that, you know, will definitely be very controversial, um, but it's it keeps coming up in my news feed. So I thought that it would be really worth talking about. Um, And it has a very shocking headline. So this article uh, is just called The Clintons Had Slaves. And of course, this caught my attention because at first, I I don't know, I assumed it was some like fake news story uh, being peddled around to bash the Clintons. But mm -hmm. (laughs) but then once I actually read it, I saw, you know, the author wasn't talking about slavery per se, but was pointing out the the very true fact that while governor and first lady of Arkansas, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton had prisoners work in the governor's mansion. Um, So this actually comes straight from a book that Hillary Clinton herself wrote in 1996. Um, The book was called It Takes a Village. Um, And and here's a a, a quote that's uh, being shared around so much. One unusual aspect of living in the Arkansas governor's mansion was getting to know prison inmates who were assigned to work in the house and the yard. When we moved in, I was told that using prison labor at the governor's mansion was a longstanding tradition, which kept down costs. And I was assured that the inmates were carefully screened, end quote. So, I know that this we, we talked a little bit about this before the show, and I, and I do want to say um, that I do think, you know, the, the, the framing of it is definitely sensationalist and that it's all about the Clintons just because, you know, people want to hate on Hillary Clinton right now. <laughs> um, and so having some news hook about her having slaves will definitely get attention. Um, but of course, it's worth demonstrating that, as she said, this wasn't, you know, a new policy that they instituted. Um, I, I think it is a fair criticism that they didn't end this policy. Um, but this was a longstanding thing. And I'm, I think it's safe to assume that the current governor of Arkansas, who's Asa Hutchinson and former head of the DEA, he probably still oh, has wow. these slaves in his mansion as well. Um, but it, it, this is a huge issue just because it goes to show how similar modern prison labor is to the the very literal slavery uh, back in the 1800s, not just kind of in in the societal effects, but in the practicality that, you know, these are a bunch of young black men that they're bringing into the governor's mansion to be servants and gardeners and that sort of thing, essentially, you know, waiting on the the ruling class. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I mean, some stories have attempted to make this connection between prison, modern day prison labor and mm-hmm. um, slavery, um, may- maybe not putting as much emphasis on how pervasive prison labor really is throughout the United States as, mm-hmm. you know, I would want. But, you know, yeah. the documentary 13th um, on Netflix mm-hmm. has like drawn a very clear line to the 13th Amendment, which actually didn't outlaw slavery altogether, but created an exception that if you were criminally convicted, it was still okay to literally, it's still okay under the constitution to be a slave Mm -hmm. in the United States, as long as you have a criminal conviction. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, again, like, like you said, Sam, I really don't want to focus on how like prison labor is used in one very specific context because it is Mm -hmm. so pervasive. Like it, I often wonder how much of my stuff, um, yeah. 
that you have no idea where where it's manufactured um, or whether mm-hmm. it was made by um, you know prison labor people who get paid like cents like yeah. pennies per, per hour of wage mm-hmm. um, and then who are also within their system overcharged for like commodities um, right. with yeah, little, little savings they can save an hour. yeah mm-hmm. um, and then and and you brought up that. Um, some of our stuff or a lot of their stuff might not even be made just with prison labor type slavery, but mm-hmm. actual slavery in other countries and like mm-hmm. um, sweatshops being very real and um, certain, you know, like mining for certain minerals in yeah. uh, very much less regulated countries or even authoritarian countries being done like um like in mm-hmm. in a violent like at the at the end of a, a of a, a gun pointed at you, um, yeah. and that you really have no choice in engaging in that type of labor. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and we are a, a little over time here, but I think this just is such an important story because. Um, so I do want to make just two really quick points. Um, one of them is that if, if folks haven't listened to the podcast "Wrongful Conviction," um, I definitely highly recommend it. It's run by the Innocence Project, and it's. Each episode is an interview of someone who was wrongfully convicted, many of them framed, some of them just wrong place, wrong time, um, but people who were in prison for a crime they didn't commit. And and one of them, the the guy was explaining his experience in prison. It was down south. I, I forget which state it was, um, but it shocked me to hear his account of it because this prison literally used to be a plantation mm-hmm. um, and they have still the prisoners uh, doing this in, inmate labor, slave labor, where they're in the fields, they're literally picking cotton mm-hmm. um, and doing the same exact things that quite possibly, you know, their ancestors were doing as as slaves. But the only difference being that, you know, they might have a nonviolent drug conviction slapped mm-hmm. on them that legally enables this. Um and it was really shocking, you know, as a, as a Yankee, I'm from Connecticut, I live in Massachusetts now. Um, I, I've always known that prison labor existed and with, you know, the stereotypical examples of them, you know, making license plates and that kind of thing. Um, and at first it was just shocking to hear about these like plantation prisons. But I guess I kind of backed up and questioned myself because, yeah, there's like a more visceral sort of reaction when it's, oh, this is, you know, like cotton, literally picking being forced cotton. to pick cotton is... You know, that's slave labor. But at the same time, is it actually any worse than being forced to do any other sort of labor? I don't think so. Um, But it just has that weird connection. Um, And I do. And I'm just going to end here with the the author's own conclusion in this article. And so he also recognizes that the whole Clinton thing was just a hook. But um, and here's the quote. The Clinton slavery controversy should not really be about the Clintons. It's the prison labor system as a whole that is rotten, and there were only two especially amoral beneficiaries of it. Today, our attention should be focused on the cotton pickers of Louisiana and the scores of other modern-day slaves. This is not a mere pathology of the Clintons, but a pathology of the country we all inhabit, and it is not just a single noxious political family that is complicit. We all are. And that's the end of the quote. And we'll definitely link to all that in our show notes. So moving on now to our quick hit headlines. The Medical Officer of Health in Toronto, Canada, has called on the federal government to decriminalize simple possession of marijuana immediately in advance of the country legalizing adult use marijuana in July 2018. 
According to Dr. Eileen Davila's report, as many as 59,000 charges and 22,000 convictions for simple possession could be avoided if marijuana is criminal- decriminalized now. In Punjab, India, an angry mob killed a man who was accused of supplying drugs to youth in the area. He had just gotten out of jail for those drug allegations when a mob viciously attacked him, cutting off one of his hands and one of his feet. He died in the hospital, and police described it as a lynching, saying they are pursuing murder charges against those involved and even have a video of the incident. The ACLU of California and the Drug Policy Alliance are suing the California city of Fontana for what they say are unreasonable restrictions on residents' now legal ability to grow marijuana in their own homes. The city has passed a law that would require residents to obtain $400 permits for home cultivation and submit to criminal background checks and city inspections. And this past Wednesday, the Connecticut House of Representatives debated regulating marijuana like alcohol, the first time in history that one of the state's legislative bodies has ever debated the issue on the floor. It did not receive a vote, as the intention was to build the case for including legalization in the omnibus budget bill that is still being negotiated. And now on to our weekly forecast. Uh, Mine this week is not an event, but is a day to celebrate. Uh, Mm -hmm. This Monday, June 12th, is a day we like to call Doc Ellis Day. So on this day, or on Monday, if you're listening on Monday, Mm -hmm. in 1970, the baseball pitcher Doc Ellis pitched an 8-walk 2-0 no-hitter while he was tripping on acid. Um, as the story goes, and I think we might have celebrated this day before on previous in previous years. It's like mm-hmm. one of our favorites, right? Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> as the story goes, Ellis was in Los Angeles that day and had no idea. He played for the Pittsburgh Pirates at the time, who I believe are mm-hmm. no longer a bu- baseball team. Um, mm-hmm. But for some reason, he had no idea he'd be playing a game that night. So he decided in order to unwind and relax to take a hit of acid. Um, and after he had already taken the LSD, he was then informed that he would have to play. Um, so that's what he did. Um, And of course, the drug policy reform community fields a team on the Congressional Softball softball League here in D.C., the one hitters, um, on which Sam and I have both been players. So Doc Ellis is a bit of a mascot for us. Mm -hmm. Happy Doc Ellis Day, everybody. (laughs) And this week, it is finally time for the National Cannabis Industry Association's annual conference, which we have been uh, talking about a few times before on the show. Uh, So the conference itself runs Monday to Wednesday, uh, but I'll personally be in the area from Sunday to Thursday, and I'll be there on behalf of Forefront. The area is Oakland, California, so the (laughs) Bay Area. Good catch. (laughs) And uh, I'll be there for Forefront as I'll be speaking on a panel about the evolving regulations around on-site consumption of cannabis, along with a few other awesome people from across the country. So if you're there for the conference or if you just live somewhere near Oakland, let me know. Uh, It would be really great to meet some Twid listeners while I'm out there. And as always, for conferences, I'll be sure to bring along some stickers. So hope to see you there. So that's all for this week's segment of Weekly News and Forecast. As always, Sam and I and the rest of the TWID team have our eyes and ears out for the biggest news and headlines in drug and drug policy from around the world. But there's so much going on that we don't always catch your favorite story. Um, So if you'd like to get in touch with us, we are on social media. You can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Um, Otherwise, you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com.
Hey everyone, and welcome to This Week in Drug History with me, your friendly podcast producer, Tyler Williams. Every other week, I'll be bringing you relatively rigorously researched history of drugs, drug policy, and other topics of tangential interest. As always, a little note on the historian's craft. History is more of an art than a science, and so here's a little bit of exposition on my own creative process. For this segment, I'll be taking listener-submitted questions, distilling the essence of the topic into one discrete question, contextualizing that question into a specific time frame, and then using primary and secondary sources to answer it, all in one 10-15 to 15 minute segment of audio. So with that out of the way, let's get right down to the question, submitted this time by Greg Nicholson through our Facebook page. Greg asks about global cannabis criminalization. Was there one decision that made it illegal overnight, or was it a country-by-country process over a decade or more? And Greg, I gotta say, I love this question. This is an excellently crafted historic question. I'm not even going to recontextualize it or reframe it. Let's dig in. Greg's asking for some history about the entire world, which is usually done with a degree of caution. Humanity is pretty unfathomably large. Maybe not in the same way that, say, the universe is large, but the complexities of human society, and particularly the global community, create a degree of uncertainty when it comes to questions of our collective history. But this question is so specific, it really provides a good foothold for the history. I'm going to leave it unperturbed and just go ahead and answer it. So, the easiest way to start with this question is to look to the single convention on narcotic drugs of 1961. I've included a link to the full 168-page text from the United Nations in the show notes, which you can find at thisweekindrugs.org. But the long and short of it is that this is the UN treaty that consolidated drug control efforts between member states and was the first global consensus on criminalizing cannabis. So if the question was, what was the first all-encompassing document that created global drug prohibition, there you would have it the single convention on narcotic drugs of 1961. But the answer to Greg's question is that the process of criminalizing cannabis also happened piecemeal over the world. If you've got a sense of U.S. drug policy, you'll know that marijuana was made illegal almost 30 years before the convention, in 1937. And the U.S. wasn't the only country in the world to criminalize the drug. I've included a Wikipedia table of the legal status of marijuana in various countries, and many of them list the origin of their prohibition. Egypt made it illegal in 1868, Indonesia in 1927, Lebanon banned hashish in 1926 but didn't ban cannabis production until 1992, Morocco was a bit late on the uptake but still beat the UN by a few years by banning it in 1957. There is a pretty substantial list of other early adopters of cannabis prohibition, but the fact is there were a patchwork of cannabis prohibitions that emerged around the globe before the UN adopted the single convention on narcotic drugs. This makes some intuitive sense, right? In order for the UN to adopt a convention that banned the substance, there had to be some support among the global community for it to happen. Sure, some member states and members of the Security Council have undue weight in such proceedings, but it's easy to conceptualize homegrown prohibition making its way up to the ears of UN delegates from eager prohibitionists in each member state. Some more interesting information that I encountered in my research is that while the single convention was the first successful global prohibition of cannabis, there were earlier attempts in the League of Nations, spearheaded by the ever-despised Harry Anslinger. 
The language was amended and so weak that Enslinger ultimately ended up refusing to support the final product. Beyond that, throughout the history of the League of Nations, there were other mechanisms that regulated the production and distribution of certain substances, such as the Convention for Limiting the Manufacture and Regulating the Distribution of Narcotic Drugs, and the International Convention Relating to Dangerous Drugs. So there you have it, folks. If you want to check out the fine-grained details of how cannabis prohibition came about in specific countries and regions, I'd recommend you start with a list of legalization statuses, pick a few countries that you don't know much, and learn about them. If you want to learn about how most of the world got on basically the same page about cannabis prohibition, start with the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs of 1961. And don't forget to go through our episodes about ungas and international issues, where we talk about how those documents have evolved over the years. I've also included a link to The Rise and Decline of Cannabis Prohibition, The History of Cannabis in the UN Drug Control System, and Options for Reform, uh, published by the Transnational Institute. Thanks for your question, Greg. I hope I did it justice, and enjoy the rest of the show, everyone. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different during the roundtable. Instead of bringing in outside experts to talk about drug policy, we're just calling in the crew of This Week in Drugs to talk about ourselves. It is our hundredth episode, and this is our retrospective. If I wasn't so picky about my aesthetic choices, I might title this episode Clip Show, because we'll be talking about some of the things that we have done, the things that we've loved about putting this podcast together, along with some interspersements of bloopers that I've collected from our four seasons of audio data. So enjoy this retrospective, and I'll let the rest of the folks talk about their experience and where they're coming from, and jump in from time to time to keep on guiding the conversation. Thanks for being here, and uh, thanks for letting us do this really amazing thing for almost two years now. Wow. I really can't believe that we've already been doing this for 100 episodes now, um, almost two years. Uh, it'll be two years in just a few weeks. Um, but yeah, just to take some time to think about some of the highlights from the past uh, 100 episodes. I mean... To start with, just the whole process of doing this has been an incredible experience uh, of every Saturday morning, getting to hop on Skype with Rochelle to talk about the latest drug policy news from the last week and things that were coming up and just being able to have that time to catch up with each other too and kind of talk about a lot more in depth about everything that's going on um, and kind of winnowing it down to the highlights has been a lot of fun. And of course, we've said it a lot before on the show, but being able to talk about stuff other than marijuana um, has been great, um, especially just because, as we've said, when marijuana is your day job, it tends to get boring pretty quickly. Um, and marijuana has been my day job the entire time we've been making the show. I've been working with Forefront Ventures the whole time. Um, and as our listeners, I'm sure all know, over the past six months, uh, marijuana has been my side job as well uh, with me working with the Marijuana Policy Project in Connecticut. So when you have one and a half marijuana jobs, um, it's definitely even more refreshing to be able to spend some time each week thinking and talking about broader drug policy reform uh, because I'm only in the marijuana world because I, I care about the war on drugs. 
Um, for myself, I've been so proud of the work we've accomplished, but especially the attention that we gave from the very beginning to make sure to connect drug policy work to other forms of fighting oppression. Even since our very first episode aired, which was shortly after the Freddie Gray protests broke out in Baltimore, our very first guest, our very first guest that we ever had was Neil Franklin, a former Maryland state trooper and now the leader of LEAP, who came, to, who came on to talk to us about the racial tension that had been boiling up in Baltimore and the police brutality there and how all of that is just not just connected to, but facilitated by and propped up by the war on drugs. For some of the favorite content that we've had over these years, I mean, I think that the debates that we've hosted have been some of my favorites so far. Um, I mean, our first one about rescheduling, uh, that was with Bill Piper and Mike Lazuski. I think that was so important just because rescheduling is something that gets talked about so much in the marijuana community. And people tend to treat it as if, oh, we can just wave a magic wand and it's rescheduled. You know, it's the president's wand, but the president can do it by himself with just his signature. But as we found out in the debate, it is a lot more complicated than that. And it is a really technical issue. So I think it was nice to be able to dive into the nitty gritty there. The other debate being the one that we hosted about Responsible Ohio back in 2015, uh, that was with Russ Belleville and Dan Riffle. Um, I think that one was great too because it did kind of explain some of the different uh, perspectives that we have within the movement because that one, to drastically oversimplify, was whether or not we should compromise on specific negative things in order to get legalization over the finish line. And I think that there are good arguments in every direction. Um People were definitely passionate on both sides of that issue, but being able to be a place where we can have those conversations on the podcast as TWID, I think has been tremendously valuable. My favorite part of season two, hands down, was bringing on Sarah Merrigan as our engagement director. Best decision we ever made. Not only did she blow up our social media presence, but she is actually our behind the scenes news gatherer. At least for me, I rely on her every week and the internal list she makes sorted by date and country uh, to narrow down, you know, the, the scope of stories I'm going to talk about. And it made sense for her to take on this role. And it made sense that we invited her to take on this role because even before she joined us, I was just following her on Twitter and getting my drug news from there anyway. I think part of the reason it was so easy for me to say yes when I was asked to join the podcast team was because I knew that I was just going to be able to talk about drugs and do produce something drug policy related for other people to enjoy, um, but do it with my friends, with three people that I care about a lot, pe people who are really, truly some of the brightest minds in drug policy. And I mean, what's better than that? I was feeling a little bit weird about recording something for the podcast 100th episode because this isn't the, my 100th episode of the podcast. You know, I've only been a part of the team since the hiatus between seasons one and two. And while that is the majority of the time, it's still, it's not everything. I haven't, I haven't done 100 episodes like the other three. And I was at first not really sure what I wanted to say. So I went back and I decided 
to listen to the first episode that I got to appear on um, and not just to work behind the scenes. And I'm incredibly quiet and I was so nervous about being on. But there's a part where we talk about um, how I got involved with the podcast and I describe myself as a super fan from season one and talk about texting Tyler when I was listening to the episodes and found something funny or, um, you know, constantly, excessively, probably sending the whole team news stories and things that I thought that they should use. And after listening to that, I started to feel a little bit better about talking about what the 100th episode of This Week in Drugs means to me. Yeah, it is a lot to conceptualize what it means to have produced a hundred podcast episodes with this team and about this movement. And um, it is overwhelming to think about all of the things that we have talked about and covered. And um, it's also really gratifying to think about the community response to our podcast and sort of the impact that we've had on our listeners and the people who've come on to the show. So um, I'm just going to let the other folks talk about some of those impactful moments for them. And yeah, I'll uh, let them take it away. And by far, I do think that the most impactful story we've covered has been the Silk Road with Ross Ulbricht's trial and conviction. Um, Having Lynn Ulbricht, Ross's mother, on the show in order to talk about the ramifications of his arrests and what the family's been going through trying to get their son out of prison to not have a life sentence for nonviolent crimes. Um, When we talk about all of these different drug policy happenings with people being arrested uh, or tried and convicted, it's easy to think about it in terms of the big picture, but it's easy to forget that there's always a little picture too, that these people had loved ones in their personal lives, that it's not just about the policy. It's not just about the implications for the drug trade. Uh, but instead there are people that they're leaving behind mothers, fathers, uh, sometimes spouses or children. And and we need to remember that. I'm just a really big believer in, in the power of conversation and in the power of exposing people to new perspectives and ideas and particularly about topics like drugs and things that can be considered controversial. You know, I think that's talking about things is, is the way that we start them out. And so, you know, when most of, most of my work with the podcast was behind the scenes and when we got to season four and Sam and Rochelle started stepping up their amazing professional careers um, and we needed to fill fill the void of co-hosting and eventually sort of just hosting some of the roundtable discussions, I had gotten to a point where I felt like I was at least comfortable enough to try it. And I figured if I really sucked, people would tell us and they would start complaining and writing on our Facebook wall. And, you know, that hasn't happened yet. Um, you feel free to let me know if, if that's the case. But um, I have really started to enjoy it and, and the conversations that I'm able to have with 
the brightest minds in drug policy, like we tell you every week. Um, I've had the pleasure of chatting with so many brilliant people this season already. The few that really stick out are, perhaps unsurprisingly, some of the ones that relate to travel I've been able to do because of this podcast, um, particularly Taleb Quelly and Jill Stein from the National Cannabis Festival. That was just absolutely incredible. Um, not something I saw myself doing at ever really um but also you know i was able to attend the the harm reduction international conference in montreal last month and if you listen to the episode with zoe dodd and nasni megzudi and dr vilmarie narlock um you know then you you heard the whole discussion about the the protests that happened during the opening of the conference, um, and by protests, again, we really mean about 40 people who stood up with banners and signs that said things such as, they talk, we die, and they turned their backs on the Canadian health minister, Jane Philpott. And this was a really controversial thing, and I think... You know, the last two episodes we've done um, have both featured primarily Canadian guests. Um, and we had, um, last week we had Alex Betsos and Monroe Craig from Karmic, a harm reduction organization that's based in Vancouver, uh, where heroin and fentanyl and opiates are really taking their toll. Um, and... I mentioned it last week, but I really want to reiterate it because it highlights what one of my favorite things, the, the best part maybe of, of hosting these conversations for me. You know, we were able to give a platform for Alex to speak, who is someone who does nightlife harm reduction work, is an, an organizer, um, is part of the community, and he participated in the demonstration. Um, and then last week we spoke with... Nasli, uh, who works at the International Center for Science and Drug Policy. And while she was completely, completely supportive of the demonstration, it wasn't necessarily an action she felt comfortable taking. And she does an incredible job of really breaking down why and the roles that everyone has to play within social movements like drug policy reform. Um, but it was great to give a platform to the two of them coming, sort of coming from two different places. And then also to be able to let Zoe Dodd speak about what well, she was one of the organizers and letting her speak about why it was necessary. Um, and I think that that's really, I've been talking about the power of conversation, but also the power of as much as possible, literally giving the microphone to people and, and not, I don't really like the phrase, like, um, being a voice for the voiceless, like pretty much everybody has voice. Like they can speak for themselves. They just need the chance to. And I think one thing that 
this podcast is able to do is to give the microphone to people who aren't always getting it and to make sure that we're providing a space where people can come and can discuss their lived experiences without necessarily a fear of judgment from us um, and hopefully not judgment from our listeners either. But that's not up to me. That's up to you guys. One thing that everyone could agree made a huge impact was our time and energy spent covering the Philippines. That's something that Sarah, Sam, and Rochelle all identified as one of their favorite pieces of work that we've done, and and especially the way that we did it. And I, I have to agree, I think that we got in early talking about the issues, and we've done a lot of behind-the-scenes work to make sure that we're not being voyeuristic to make sure that we're presenting it in a balanced way and that this isn't some sort of uh, sensationalist story that we're presenting, but really trying to position ourselves in a place where we're talking about how drug prohibition goes to the extreme and what that might look like in a place where and what that might look like and what that might look like on the ground. So I'll let the others talk a little bit more about their feelings on this one. And I guess kind of tying it all together, on one of the last episodes, I think maybe the third episode I did, we uh, talked about New Year's resolutions. And I mentioned, um, you know, the heinous mass murders uh, under Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, um, and that my intention resolution was to really help the, the podcast go global and have more of an international focus, even though the vast majority of our listeners are based in the United States. And I think that's something we've also done a really incredible job of. And I think it's something, at least from where I stand and what I've experienced, it's something that's very important for for everyone in the U.S. to understand, but particularly for people who are working on drug policy issues um, because the war on drugs is undeniably a global issue and the role of the United States is a big one and has been for over a century. Um, there, you know, there's a reason that we do history segments this season. There's, there's a reason that we, that we talk about the fact that knowledge is good, but doing something with that knowledge is better. And some of the other content, I mean, aside from those debates, um, our coverage of the Philippines, I've been really proud of that. I mean, when we first started covering that, um, it really wasn't being talked about in American mainstream media at all. Most of the news stories that we linked to were Filipino websites. Um, there were some drug policy reformers, Tom Angel and a few others who were looking at it at the time, but the American media hadn't really caught on. And since that time, the New York Times and pretty much every other major publication has started to pay attention. But I'm glad that we were one, one of the media outlets that were really leading the charge at that time. And having Oliver Zerudo on to give the perspective of someone from the Philippines, I think was really valuable too. 
just because it is so rare uh, to get that perspective in American media. And there's a lot of context that we're missing when we think about this issue. And it's not, you know, quite as simple as you might think it is. I've also been really proud of our coverage on the Philippines and President Rodrigo Duterte's war on drugs, um, as everyone knows, which involves the extrajudicial killings of accused drug users. Um, We not only started reporting on this story before most of the mainstream news caught on, um, other than John Oliver, who actually called him the Trump of the East before either Duterte or Trump Trump were elected president. Um, But we also made sure early on to interview someone who was born and raised um, in the Philippines and still has family there, Oliver Zerudo, an SSD peer, um, to make sure that we got his perspective and were not just speaking as outsiders and Westerners who didn't really understand the politics around someone like Duterte, Duterte being elected and still now being very popular within the Philippines. Another component that really came out in these retrospectives was talking about the original content that we generated, specifically our Drug of the Month segments. And I'll just let Sam and Rochelle talk a little bit about their experience doing this. And uh, after that, I think we'll see some of the behind the scenes that folks didn't get to experience, uh, perhaps thankfully, during the full episodes. And finally, just to talk about some of the other content that we've produced uh, I have been really proud of our Drug of the Month segments. Uh, that Those were definitely the hardest to produce. Um, definitely the most amount of time went into each of those for only a few minutes per episode, just because I was learning so much new stuff myself. And that was a great time to not just think about issues, but actually learn a lot of new facts and new history about these drugs that we talk about so much. And uh, I definitely encourage people to check out the fact pods that we have on the website now because, you know, all of those things pretty much are timeless. So I think it is really important that we have that sort of outlet for people to learn about them. Drug of the month, honestly, was probably my least favorite segment to record because it was basically researching and writing an essay every other week. Um, It was like homework. And then I got to record it, which was fun, but I hated doing the actual, like putting it together. Um, and if you if you ever read the Wikipedia <laughs> entries on any of our drug of the month, it's like I like basically read like Wikipedia for like twenty minutes or however long these segments were. I don't even remember five minutes. <laughs> but I think my all time favorite um, drug of the month segment was when we got to do the when I got to do the history of heroin, which I actually co opted to tell you guys about the history of the opium wars. Um, which happened between Britain and China and resulted in um, the colony where my family is from, Hong Kong. So one of the parts I actually hate the most about doing this podcast is not knowing how to pronounce sciencey words. Uh, for drug of the month segments, I actually used to have to go to YouTube to listen to the correct pronunciation of words before recording. So if you ever don't know how to record, pronounce a word. I don't know if you know this, but there are YouTube vis- videos that just say the word over and over and you get to like learn how to say really complicated words. Uh, but still, sometimes when we're doing news stories, um, I'll be unprepared and run into a word I don't know halfway through maybe one of Sam's stories. And then I'll be like, I'll just have to take take a guess at it or like ask Sam how to say this word. Um, and that makes me very nervous. Remain inactive when ingested orally without the mono. 
without the without the monoamine oxidase inhibitor. For chemically completely different reasons, amyl nitrite was also used medically as an antidote to cyanide poisoning. I'm going to say that again. For com- for chemi- for bleh. Oh my god, I'm so sorry, Tyler. I don't know why the sentence is so hard. Due to its illegality, the exact formula and methods for creating PCP are not widely known, but a skilled chemist would be able to figure it out, and in fact, many have. As well as some on the... Uh, <clears throat> restarting that even has their reli- religious use of ayahuasca <clears throat> gonna re- re-record that tyler wait just skip that last sentence um i'm gonna restart unfortunately while robo tripping has become enough of a bleh. opium is the i'm gonna restart heroin base commonly found in europe when prepared for injection, is often dissolved in water. No, I'm going to say that again too. While nitrous is sometimes... Okay, I'm going to to re-say that. Kratom doesn't seem to... Starting that over. Kratom does seem to have become popular in Thailand since that survey. Starting that one more time. But after a few high... high, Redo that. The ACLU of Kalwa. Cal- Mama Marie, I'm going to restart that one, Tyler. Sorry. <laughs> a May 2016 study in the journal Psychology of Violence surveyed over 6,000 students. Starting that sentence over. This is bad, Tyler. Can you just um, cut off wherever my sentence made sense? Um, like the last place my sentence made sense. <laughs> Can you just cut off this? Last chunk. I'm sorry. Thank you. The vast majority of it's still in your breath when you exhale. Well, we don't know. The vast majority of it's in your air. Unfortunately, you might even recognize some of those bloopers, uh, because while I have diligently and faithfully produced content on time, I've not always caught every single blooper that there was and uh certainly i have been let know uh behind the scenes about where i've missed things uh because it really is i'm the last line of defense always there trying to make sure that i make the others sound good and uh when i don't do my job uh they definitely let me know (laughs) and where is backstage what is behind the scenes backstage is actually a facebook thread that we've had going for years now Um, We all have nicknames on this Facebook thread ever since you could do that. Sam is, can I, can I say this on air? Can I tell them? So Sam is Captain Smiley Beard. Tyler is the gatekeeper. And Sarah is Pitbull because, you know, she's Mr. International. (laughs) And yeah, we do most of our planning and organizing in this Facebook thread, which is incredibly very millennial as of us. Um... So as far as things that haven't made it on air, we actually did once interview Kevin Sabet, who was our only quote-unquote opponent that I think we would have ever had on. But the universe, in its infinite wisdom, knew that that was such a bad idea. Um, it ruined the audio completely. I mean, whatever we recorded was completely unusable. Um, and I think that's the only interview we've ever had that we had to scrap completely. Which is not to say 
that we haven't had extremely patient and very, very kind friends who have been on our show who have done us the courtesy of re-recording uh, whenever our audio technology does mess up sometimes. Um, I think Graham Debara and Jeremy Sharp are tied for the record a number of times we asked them to <laughs> re-record with us. Um, but you know, these things happen. Um, we are using like free software on Skype. Like no one even uses Skype anymore. And neither, I, I mean, I don't either other than for producing this show. So shout out to um, our friends for being ever so patient and working hard with us on this. Let's have a quick listen to some of those technical difficulties and flubs. Someone named Pumpkin something tried to <laughs> add me as a contact. I don't know if that's Sarah. Ooh, pumpkins. Pumpkin Hansen. Pumpkin Hansen? Yeah. No. <laughs> Is that Sarah? No, it looks like a cleavage girl who's not Sarah. Hmm. Yeah, I get random cleavage girl contact requests <laughs> all the time, too. Oh, yeah, Sam? I, us- I usually don't. I- Sometimes I don't have my computer and I'm like, oh, it's not a big deal. I can just use Tom's and then like nothing. I don't know how to do anything on his computer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ah. Um, I have too much stuff. I have too much stuff on my, on my coffee table right now. I have to go put some stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I was oh, like, yeah, on I, your mind, on your computer, in the stock, and what's that? No, 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 no. But, yeah, um, go for it. I was like, I was like, there's so much crap here. I don't have space for my microphone. I'll be right back. But um, there was even a previous letter or, oh, sorry. Hold on. The cleaning people are here. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're going to clean first upstairs, but can you hear them in the background? I can't right now. Okay. Um, Tyler, take out this whole chunk where I was talking about my cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know at what point I started trailing off, but I feel like my sentence was good. <laughs> Is there a link to like a page about this initiative or anything? Because I honestly don't know about it. Should I, say, should I say all the parts about how scary this is, too? So uh, it sounds yeah, like... maybe just do that over again. Okay. <laughs> Take two. Um, Alright, I'm going to try again, Tyler. So sorry. I love recording this podcast. I love learning. I do love learning a ton for Drug of the Month and getting to meet and hear from these really incredible guests, um, including legislators, doctors, tons of reformers, um, you know, thought leaders. But especially this season with just doing the news now, um, it's basically just getting to hang out and talk shit with my buddy Sam Tracy every week. Um, so that, that's been a really fun excuse to like work on a project, um, you know, with SSDP alumni also, which has been incredibly rewarding. So here's a little view behind the scenes at Sam and Rochelle's friendships recording the news. So coming, yeah, that... oh, go, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go for it. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I almost burst out laughing when you said big D Democrats. Um, I was like, oh, no, I know that that's a phrase, but it is a, a pretty huge deal um, and something that I yeah, want to take some time to talk about. So do you have um, any <laughs> or I could just jump into something? else? No, too. you should jump into something else. I don't know what to say about this. <laughs> sure. Sorry, Tyler. Can you cut out this chunk? Cut out this quick part. So what evidence does the state have against 
uh, Senator Dilema, and what what are what what is the potential for us seeing something else like that here? Sorry, I already said what the evidence was. Oh my god, I'm sorry. <laughs> cool. So Tyler, you so can this out <laughs> along with I think every transition between every new story. Whoops. Sorry, Tyler. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. I like how we always like pause like three seconds after we're done the conclusion. <laughs> Before we celebrate. <laughs> Gotta give it that little buffer. <laughs> I also really enjoy giving you guys my Canadian perspective on the news, um, especially because Canada has been killing it recently in drug policy reform. Um, shout out to my my people, um, both federally and locally, um, including authorizing supervised injection facilities all across the country. I think they're up to 12 uh, legal ones now. Also, um, being in the process of legalizing marijuana and allowing more harm reduction providers to volunteer at festivals, um, but also because then I get to make weird mistakes about American geography and other American facts, um, like not knowing where Nebraska is. Sorry, Sarah. Yeah, that was pretty exciting to see. Um, actually, that that those pair of initiatives didn't come to our attention until just last week also. Um, mm-hmm. Sarah, you're the one who, like, raised the flag that this was happening in Oklahoma's right next door to your home state, Nebraska. Uh, did you have any thoughts on this? Uh, my first thought is that Oklahoma and Nebraska are not actually right next door to each other. Kansas is in between. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we get for inviting uh, a Canadian on the show. I know. <laughs> so all on that same day, the Vermont, the Vermont, the Vermont <laughs> Senate, So now that I've sufficiently poked fun at and highlighted the small mistakes of my coworkers here, I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite bloopers, which is really turned inwards on myself. It was the first blooper we released because it was the first one I felt comfortable sending out to the public. And uh, I'll just leave you with that. And also, I don't know, did we want to talk about when about SSTP 2018, since we're talking about the future a little bit here? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, Happy to. So that is, um, I'm going to take a pause because I need to find out. (laughs) Do you have the details, Sarah? I I, I have it in the Google Doc. Yeah, come on, Tyler. It's it's March 2 through 5. March 2 through 5. Okay, cool. Cool. In Baltimore. Yeah, I know know that. I just don't know the dates. (laughs) Baltimore's in Maryland. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. All right, I'll let us. I'll let it sound like we haven't been laughing for two minutes before I go back into this. I'm gonna mute myself. It's fine. Just as far as some of the production side of things, I have loved so much hearing from people who listen to the show, um, from state representatives and other elected officials to people in academia to SSD peers to other students to people who just found us on Reddit. Um, It's been great being able to build that kind of community, and I really appreciate uh, seeing how many people have found the show and are passionately listening to it. And finally, I do have to just say, um, I I also love the music that we've had on the show. Um, I'm not a music person myself. I'm not like a connoisseur. I don't know band names and who's in them and that kind of stuff, let alone lyrics to songs or anything about music theory. But I think our music has been fantastic and it's all been produced by volunteers. I think all SSDPers 
And it's just incredible to be able to showcase all of the talent that's in the SSDP network producing music and having that be part of the show, I, I think has been really meaningful. Yeah, Sam put it really well about how rewarding it is to interact with our fans and our listeners. It's one of my favorite things about doing this is hearing from y'all, whether it be through our email or Facebook or Twitter or just running into you at conferences and talking about what goes on behind the show, what you liked, what you don't like, ideas for the show. I mean, a lot of our segments, the, the This Week in Drugs history, the many iterations of our Drug of the Month and Drug of the Week and that sort of thing, um, and almost all of our news stories and, and 100% of our forecasts pretty much come from listener submissions. So, uh, you know, we really couldn't do it um, without y'all and... Speaking of people we couldn't do it without, I think, uh, you know, it would be a disservice not to talk about all the fantastic friends we've had on the show and people doing this amazing work in drug policy reform. And um, I got to say, I think one of the biggest things that I've taken from doing this podcast beyond an amazing volume and body of work that I am so incredibly proud of to say that I have, I have produced and put out there is a deeper understanding for how the drug policy reform movement is working as a whole. We've talked to people from different localities and countries doing different types of work, some work intersecting with others, some work that we had never heard of uh, until someone turned us on to a potential guest or someone reached out. And it is overwhelming the amount of community and citizen-led initiatives that are happening to make the world a better place. And it's so inspiring. It... Um, puts this work, this work of doing the podcast in perspective as well, and makes us really think about our place here as kind of a platform and a stage for people who are doing good work to talk about that work and get out there to, you know, almost a thousand people a week now. And um, it's just so it feels like doing this podcast has really made me feel like there is an existing drug policy reform community and that I have a role and a place there. It's like the first time I went to an SSDP conference and I talked to other students who were running and involved in their school's chapters. And I was like, wow, there's all these people who care about the same things I care about, do similar work that I do. And we can really do this together. This is going somewhere. And now I spend three to five hours a week listening to people who I know or will know soon about the work that they're doing to change the world. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. There's there's nothing else. There's no other experience quite like bringing people together to talk about their passion and to talk about their life's work and listen to it every week. So um, I'm just so grateful for all of the listeners who make this worthwhile. I'm so grateful to the, um, I'm so grateful to the people who've been on our show and also to my fantastic coworkers who have also become lifelong friends. And um, that's, 
that's my retrospective uh, from behind the scenes. Uh, thanks for bearing with me the weeks that I've been on the show, and I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this uh, audio that we put out every week. And with all that said, I have one final announcement for this retrospective show. Uh, instead of looking to the past, this is a little bit about the future, but I will let Rochelle take it away in her own words. So my time is up soon, friends. Episode 105, which is actually our exactly our second year anniversary, is going to be my last episode. Um, I've had such an amazing time hosting this week in drugs. And not just see our audience grow over the years, but also see the quality of our reporting and the quality of our production and outreach improve. Um, and learn so much about drug policy and myself and have some fun while we're at it. I can't wait to see where Sam and Sarah and Tyler and whoever the rest of the TWID team may be are going to take you next. Wait, one more thing, Tyler. And you can splice this in wherever you want. It doesn't have to be the last thing. But it's crazy to think that TWID has lasted longer than any job I've had. Um, you guys have been through, I think, at least three jobs with me. Um, and this is definitely the second longest relationship I've had. So I feel really blessed to have spent this much time um, with... Tyler, Sam, and Sarah on the show, as well as getting to talk to you all in the audience, my invisible friends. <laughs> so on that note, thanks for being here for episode 100, the This Week in Drugs retrospective clip show. We really appreciate all of our listeners. If you want to check out our show notes, you can find them at thisweekindrugs.org. If you want to send us a message, you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at This Week in Drugs. If you want to support us financially to help keep us going, uh, links to our Patreon and PayPal accounts are at thisweekindrugs.org as well. And uh, we hope to see you next week. Thanks for being here. Thanks for indulging us a little bit. And our outro song for today is a classic, Lawyer Up by Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. So if the police interrogate or arrest you, asking for a lawyer is a good way to assert your right to remain silent. Lawyer up. That's right.
Yay! Episode 100! We did it!